Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. Today I'm here with Chris, here to answer questions about meditation. So to start off, we do 15 minutes of meditation. It's a chance for people to actually post questions in the chat. And once you've posted your question, or if you don't have any questions, just get started with the meditation. We'll spend the first 15 minutes either walking or sitting, or a little bit of walking, a little bit of sitting. And then at 15 minutes after the hour, I'll come back and we'll switch the chat to questions only. And you can keep posting questions and I'll answer them as time permits. Okay, so 15 minutes of meditation starts now.
All right, we're back. So we move into the Q&A portion of our session. From here on, everything in the chat should be just questions. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. What would be your advice on overcoming doubt after being exposed to different views regarding the Dhamma and meditation? How does one know one is on the right path? Well, there honestly isn't a lot of room for for doubt. You have to distinguish people's opinions and interpretations from the core principles and teachings, like the Four Noble Truths are, are pretty clear. Now, there could be interpretations, but it's not hard to get a clear idea of what they are. Um, and so once you have those those core principles down, the best way to overcome any doubt about what is the right way of understanding them is, of course, through direct practice. Now, it's not an easy... It's not an easy solution because there are, of course, many different kinds of practice. But views about the Dhamma aren't that much of an issue. But you do mention views about meditation, which is, I think, more of an issue. Because, if you, of course, if you find the right meditation, then views about the Dhamma aren't really going to be a problem. You just practice rightly. So the big question is, how do you know how to practice rightly? And I, I can't well answer that for you. Of course, I'm, I can tell you that practice our way, and that's the right way, but that doesn't do justice to your question, which, of course, is about the exposure to lots of people who say pretty much the same thing. I think the only um, probably sufficient answer is to try different techniques and see what works for you. I think you can put some credence on the explanations. Some explanations turn out to be a little bit um, ambiguous, unclear, illogical perhaps even, like in the sense of the practice not leading to its stated goal, not, not obviously leading to its stated goal, seemingly contradictory, that sort of thing. Of course, you can look at the character of teachers and that sort of thing as well I mean so but I guess the only real answer I can give you is my advice is you practice the way I teach and you shouldn't have any problems in that regard I can pretty much guarantee it and so it's up to you whether you believe me or not that if you put sincere effort into this practice you won't have to worry about views and and about Dhamma or meditation like talk to people who have practiced in this tradition, ask them whether they still have doubts or wonder if they could be doing a different meditation or if they have uh, doubts about the, the way, the, you know, the nature of the Dhamma, the nature of the Buddha's teaching. And they can, of course, have many doubts about, about the, the intricacies and the details, but the core, generally they don't have any doubt about. It becomes pretty clear when you practice mindfulness. So if you haven't read our booklet, I don't know if you've started in our tradition, but uh, if you do an intensive course in this tradition, that should go a long way to solidifying your 
confidence in your understanding of what is right and wrong and so on. How does one deal with apathetic laziness in meditation and regular life? Well, I think it goes a little more deeper than apathy or laziness. They're, they're hard to pin down as actual realities because they're often associated with liking, desire and aversion, liking and disliking. So you can enjoy sensual pleasure and that makes you lazy or apathetic. You can have a depression or bitterness and that makes you lazy and apathetic. But they're usually the real root problem. Uh, I mean, the, the ultimate root problem is delusion or lack of clarity. So if you're mindful and you look clearly at your experiences, you'll, you'll see through the apathy and laziness. It's not easy, but it's more complicated than just apathy and laziness. There's there's something going on that is leading to what appears to be apathy or laziness. And it, it stems ultimately from delusion and ignorance, but it manifests in, in things like liking and disliking. Also, of course, worry, restlessness, doubt, confusion. I find myself getting more irritated by my neighbors than I used to. I am trying to be mindful of this, but it seems to be getting worse. Will deeper meditation help? Well, you, you, there are a couple of things happen when you meditate. You become more aware of your emotions, so you become more um, conscious of your propensity to get angry and irritated. But another thing is you stop uh, appeasing your negative emotions. So you stop running from them and you stop trying to um, override them with pleasure and that sort of thing. Like if you're irritated, just go do something that makes you happy. Well, if you don't do that in the beginning, you're just going to get more and more irritated. Um, but the, the, the key in, in Satipatthana Vipassana is our the, the first step is not getting rid of things like irritation, not making it any better. The first step is seeing it. And so it getting worse isn't actually a problem for the first step. The first step is only meant to see how much of a problem irritation is. So when you find it not going away, uh, that's not surprising. That's not uh, a problem. That's not an issue. That's... Um, generally what we'd expect to happen. You know, it's a, your habit is to react with irritation, so you're just going to keep doing that. But the second step is once you see how stressful and suffering the irritation is because you've been paying a lot of attention to it and because you've been letting it come, because you've been not avoiding it and not trying to fix it or anything. Um, and as a result, so the third step is that it doesn't arise anymore or it arises less or you're less interested in it because you've seen it clearly, because you've seen that it's a problem, it's the wrong response. But you have to get to that step, and to get to that step, you have to be willing to let it come. And you're probably already going through this process. You'll probably find in the future that it does come less. First it comes more, and then you'll find that in the future it comes less, simply because you're you're getting tired of it. You're, you're less keen or, or less quick to to jump to irritation. But that's only a later step. The first step is letting it come and being patient with the irritation, no matter how much comes, no matter how bad it gets.
So yeah, not deeper meditation, but just patience and further meditation. You have to go through the process. And it's a multiple step process, which people miss. They want to skip to the end and say, I'm meditating, why isn't it going away? That's the step that comes after it doesn't go away. Once it doesn't go away, it's not that in the future it goes away, it just doesn't arise because you lose all interest in, in triggering it when you see how stressful it is and how unmanageable it is and how you can't make it go away once it's come. As a frustrated suicider, believing my death will end it all comforts me. The idea of rebirth is incredibly disturbing. How do I cope with that? Hmm. Well, it should be disturbing. It hopefully disturbs you enough so that you don't decide to kill yourself. Um, no, I can't offer direct advice on suicide. I think, um, honestly, what I should be saying at this point is that this isn't an appropriate channel for your uh, issue and your best uh I best bet is to contact someone who is qualified professionally to deal with people who have suicide. In uh, in Canada, in America, there are laws around these sorts of things, and um, you really should talk to someone who can help you with that. There are professionals who are trained, but um, you know, suicide is not an answer. The, the Buddhist perspective is not going to do you any good People who believe that after death is nothing are in for quite a shock and potentially setting themselves up for uh, a bad rebirth because of their uh, aversion and their inability to cope with negative states of mind. Mindfulness helps with that, of course. But this is not advice for someone who is contemplating suicide. You should contact a professional. There are helplines all over that can help. Should one see themselves from a third-person point of view when noting, or should whatever is being noted be seen as something separate from the observer? None of those are things you should concern yourself with at all. You should just be noting as a means of reminding yourself, this is this, it is what it is. All these thoughts that you have that are prompting this, these questions or this question uh, should be noted as thinking, wondering, doubting, confused, worrying, whatever might be involved. Just note it and let it go. There's no should in, in regards to these issues that you bring up. The only thing you should be doing, again, is practicing simply. And one, one thing I guess I will say is that it's not precisely that you're doing anything wrong, even though this is wrong. These sorts of ideas are wrong. It, it's a habit. You have to see this as a habit to to analyze, to extrapolate, and to ask these questions, to doubt, to wonder. But this habit is something you have to catch and you have to be mindful of. So when you're wondering, it's not that you did something wrong. It just means that it's an, it should be taken as an object of mindfulness. So when you're wondering, say wondering, wondering. You have to see it like that. You can't prevent your mind from coming up with these sorts of concerns, wonderings, and so on but nor should you take them as something important that you should be wondering about or that you should be uh, finding a solution for. Well, they should, these thoughts themselves should be objects of mindfulness.
Sometimes, while noting, I am unable to come up with the right words for my experience in the present moment. How should I deal with those situations? Well, it takes practice. Um, some feelings are nothing more than a physical feeling, and so you can just note feeling, feeling. Sometimes there's an experience that comes, and it's just an, something you're aware, some sort of awareness of something that something happened. And lots of different things can happen. And rather finding, rather than finding a name for the thing that happened, you can just note knowing, knowing that something happened. Just note the awareness because you're left with a state of awareness that something happened. Um, but you should read our booklet, and um, there's a there's there's a frequently asked question list with the booklet that's probably worth reading. I don't know how many people actually get around to reading that, but it's probably pretty helpful still and that should give you some idea there, there's some things in there that are important to note specifically as they are so make sure you read all that what to do when things fall apart i mean what to do when your life changes drastically and you feel you have no control over what happens next well, the answer is always going to be for any any what happens is to be mindful, of course. Um, but one thing, I, one reassurance I can give you is that that's the nature of reality, and seeing that clearly in in some way or another is is quite helpful. It helps you to let go. You you you. These sorts of questions are often accompanied with a little with a desire to cling, looking for something to cling to. What should I cling to? And try not to do that. Try to come to terms with the change, uh, or, or comes to, come to terms even better with with the fact that life changes, rather than trying to cling to the new situation. Change your mind so that you're no longer stuck when things change, that you're able to adapt. Mindfulness, really, one of the crucial benefits of mindfulness is this flexibility. It's a change in perspective. Ordinarily, we cling to stability. And for the most part, we fear change or we suffer from change. Um, but my mindfulness is, is incredibly helpful in creating this ability to roll with the punches, ability to acclimatize or, or, or adapt to change and go through change without suffering. So it's an important question and it's an important topic. Just important to note that uh, important is not clinging to the new thing. Again, it's it's this adaptability and the ability to stay unaffected by change. Through the vicissitudes of life, the uh, ch changes of life, when one's mind is not uh, bothered, this is the greatest blessing. I struggle to deal with the ever-changing nature of things and my lack of control. How am I to keep my composure as my world burns to ashes? Hmm. Is this the same person asking this? It's like the same. Different questioner. Similar, I think. Yeah, I mean, in this case, it's not about change, I suppose. Uh, my world burns to ashes sounds a little more dire. 
like you're not just asking about change, which I already addressed in the last question, but you're asking about uh, bad change, change of the sort that causes intense suffering or, or at least mental trauma or mental suffering. Depression, I suppose, could be. Uh, I mean, the answer is still mindfulness, absolutely. But also um, letting go of, of concepts of identity and possessiveness, like my world and the judgment of things burning to ashes. Like in an ultimate sense, nothing is ever bad or good for us. It's just change. If something's painful, well, that's just painful. It's not bad. If something's pleasant, that's just pleasant. It's not good. Uh, it's all the the real suffering comes from psychological sources, from our, our reactions to things, our judgments of things, which are habitual and you can't turn off. But through practice, you can change them. And you can overcome the the negative reactions. Uh, I mean, ultimately, it's the best solution because you can't predict what life is going to bring. If you are lucky, uh, then you can find another way to live that doesn't require you to be objective and enlightened because things are good, but you can't rely on that. So it's not a viable solution. It's not a reasonable solution. It works for some people, and the problem is that when it works for some people, everybody else thinks, oh, it works for them, it should work for me, and then they bemoan about how unfair the world is, but... That's the nature of it, is the world is not precisely fair, though. Well, it's the, the world is unpredictable, and fairness doesn't exactly have anything to do with it. So the best solution is not to seek out that which you can cling to, but to, again, acclimatize and adapt to your new situation, but again, also to not to try and see it less as me and mine, less as bad and good, and more as just a change in a new experience. It's hard, um, but but incredibly valuable when you see that something that appears to be objectively bad turns out to just be more experiences. It actually doesn't have anything negative intrinsically about it. Uh, so again, I wouldn't put too much emphasis on trying to do that. Proper technique is is a bit of a a bit misleading, uh, a bit of a a red herring, I guess. I mean, it's it's not something that you should um, uh, stress about. Like this isn't tennis or golf or something where you have to look and see where your hands and your feet are and make everything exactly right. It's messy, and all you really should be clinging to is the very simple practice of reminding yourself, this is this. Um, so as far as physical experiences, there will be a location to them, but for mental experiences, there won't be one. Either way, if you've experienced something, your mind was in that location. During the time that you note, it's not exactly essential that it's in that location. It's not 
really important for you to try and put it anywhere. Now, for for example, for the rising and falling, because it's it's not just an experience; it's a it's a sequence. I mean, it's a series, a long series of 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 sensations that that make up the rising. So, in order to be aware of it, you have your mind has to be in that place. But it's it, it's just an expression to say put your mind in in the stomach. It technically is already arising in the stomach. And so, no, it's not really the same for anything else that you might experience because, well, you experienced it and that was that. For for things that last, for example, pain or pleasure or calm, um, I mean, pain will have a location. The calm or, or happiness, you should stay with it. Uh, when you hear a sound, well, your your mind should be with the with the sound you're hearing. Again, it's not something you really have to worry about, and it's not something I would dress over. I have found that I am able to achieve a very deep meditation by letting go wholly. I do this by thinking that nothing matters. Even if I were to die, I don't care. Is this a healthy way or escapism? It's a um, diversion, so it's not sustainable. Like you thinking that at this time has a effect on 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 your mind by triggering states of calm, but it won't always do that. And you'll find that as you go along, it's uh, it's it's just not well. It doesn't lead anywhere else, and. And it doesn't have the effect of leading to freedom from suffering. Because it's intellectual, you're thinking that, and you'll see that there is, there is a delusion that is not being cut out. So, I mean, there are lots of meditations that offer you states of calm, but these sorts of deep meditations are not ultimately the solution because you will die and you'll have to do this all again, maybe in a better place. If you have a calmer mind, that's good. But um, you, you'll see there's a lot of things you're missing by doing this if you take up the practice of mindfulness. So, so I mean, if this is a practice that you do as an auxiliary practice, like just reminding yourself about that, well, that's great. That can help. But if that's your meditation practice, I'd say, I mean, I have to tell you, you're missing out, and you're there's a lot of things you're not noticing because your mind is not sharp enough, because this isn't meditation. So if you take up mindfulness, you'll see a lot of the habits that you're clinging to. I mean, even clinging to deep meditation states of meditation is usually a sign of of desire, of attachment, of liking, and so on. Uh, and uh, that's ultimately going to hold you back. I mean, it's not going to turn you into a bad person or anything. It's all wholesome in a sense, but it's just, it's holding you back and you're going to be missing some stuff. When is seeing clearly, clearly enough? Sometimes superficial experiences are just layers of something deeper like a traumatic experience. Should I look as deep as possible? So seeing clearly is not a 
practice, it's a result. And you have to be able to distinguish. You shouldn't try to see anything clearly. You shouldn't try to look deeper or anything like that. You should do the practice methodically, systematically, and patiently. And as a result, you'll start to see more clearly. You'll see more clearly about how your mind works, your body works, how your reactions arise and habits are formed. So um, as far as what what is clear, clear enough, well, clear enough is when your mind lets go and then there's an experience of what we call Nibbana, where the mind, there's a cessation of suffering. But you don't have to go about trying to create that. You just have to practice mindfulness. The seeing clearly comes by itself. Would it be a problem if I meditate lying down or in a more comfortable position? It can be a problem if you're just doing it because you're uncomfortable, because that means you're avoiding and you're averse to the discomfort. And so you'd be, it would serve you much better if you could become at peace with the discomfort, try to be mindful of it and learn to let it go, learn to not react to it. But in certain instances, lying meditation can be helpful if you're um, overly stressed, if you're anxious. Usually lying down is best served when, when you just want to get up and run around. If you have if you're over energetic, lying meditation can help to balance that. If you're tired, on the other hand, walking meditation can be quite good. But yeah, try to learn to be patient with the discomfort if that's all it is. What advice would you give to be more consistent about meditation? The best way for consistency is to find a teacher and to do a meditation course. There's really nothing that beats that. Barring that, uh, having a uh, at least a group that you meditate with can be quite good. Um, we're just talking today about starting, I've mentioned it before, but about starting this mentorship program where we facilitate and help people start groups in their area. Just provide whatever advice and support we can. I think it's... Uh, um, it's a, it would be a helpful thing to encourage and, and reassure people and and provide tips and advice for people who are interested in starting groups in their area. So we're going to start that up. If you'd like to get involved with that, you can join our Discord server and come to the meeting. We'll try to have a meeting once a month about it once we get it started. Can referring to oneself in the third person help lose the sense of self? I mean, maybe it could help, but not to any great degree. I mean, there's no shortcut. There's nothing that's going to help besides seeing clearly, and the only way to see clearly is to practice mindfulness. So... Yeah, no, that honestly, referring to yourself in the third person isn't going to do very much at all. It's just intellectual delusion. It's, it's, it might make you feel calm sometimes and help give you a, bit, a different perspective, help take you out of your possessiveness and so on, but that's not the best thing to do. And I wouldn't rely on it or, or get attached to it.
Is praying effective? I have been praying for my late mother to reincarnate into a peaceful place, but I am not sure if it has any effect for her. No, praying doesn't have any benefit. It can actually lead to stress and, and worry and so on. Um, what is effective is wishing well for people, but which sounds like prayer, but it's not a desire or a wish for that thing to happen. It's just a um, an inclination. You know, when we wish for all beings to be happy, may they be happy. We're cultivating a quality of mind that is kind and thoughtful and friendly, nice. We're trying to cultivate nice states of mind. It helps us to see our own biases and aversions, and it helps to remind us of uh, what is important and what is good. It helps to helps us to cultivate kindness and and generosity and friendliness. So we're not particularly focused on what might be the result of it it's, so it's not prayer certainly not to any being that might be listening but no prayer is not effective it just isn't now there is something like prayer another thing like prayer that's called determination and if you have determination if you make a, a, a determination may this happen may that happen if you have strong enough determination it can happen which, which I guess sounds a lot like prayer. But so listen, there are apparently some very extreme cases where if you have a very strong mind and a very strong perfection of determination that you've cultivated over lifetimes, that you can actually help people overcome their suffering. Like if someone is, uh, is uh, no, sorry, that's not determination, such as what I'm thinking, such as the other perfection. So if someone has great perfection of truth, then they can make a truth statement based on something very, very strong, very powerful, like, I have never killed a living being. There's the story of Angulimala, who made a, a truth statement. He said, the, the Buddha, he went to the Buddha, or he went on alms round, and he saw this woman was giving birth and she was dying. Um, she was having a very hard time. Women, even today, are in danger of, of complications and death. But in the time of the Buddha, of course, in India, uh, death for the mother in childbirth was a very real possibility. So he went to see the Buddha and told him about it. And the Buddha said, well, if you, then go go tell her that since the time, they, go and tell her that you have never killed a living being. And by the power of that truth, may she be free from something. May she be well, and also her, her fetus, her child, unborn child. And Angulimala said, well, Bhante, that, that isn't true, because Angulimala used to be a mass murderer. And the Buddha said, well, in that case, of course, he, the Buddha knew that, but the Buddha said, well, in that case, tell her that since you have uh, gone come into the life of the holy life, um, you have not intentionally deprived another being of life, and by the power of that truth may you be well and also your feed, your unborn child. And the Angulimala went to do that, and because of the sincerity and the power of that fact, because him having gone from being a murderer to being a hingsaka, to being utterly and completely 
uh, harmless, um, was powerful enough to to actually have some power over her state and and provide her with a safe childbirth for both her and the baby. It's called the Angulimalaprita, and people will often, pregnant women will often go to monks and ask them to chant it for them. But I think the chanting doesn't really work like it did to, uh, for Angulimala. It's not the same thing. Anyway, that is something in Buddhism. I don't know how much... I, I wouldn't put too much stock in it simply because you need to have very strong perfections and it needs to be a very powerful and effective uh, statement. It could from time to time, if there is something in your life that you've done that is very powerful, it might have an effect on the universe if you're very sincere about it. Being lucky to find Buddha's teachings, I feel a huge sense of duty toward past lives to become enlightened. It's similar to the pressure society puts on us to be great. Advise, please. Well, that's not the reason why you feel this huge sense of duty and, and pressure. Uh, that's just a habit. So don't blame, I mean, I'm not, not accusing you of anything, but don't blame the meditation. That's just your habit. So try and take that as an object of mindfulness, stress, the pressure. And rather than seeing it as a problem, try and see it just as an experience. How to advance with meditation? Should we maximize the amount of time meditating? For example, 30 minutes sitting, meditation, morning and evening, being mindful throughout the day. Should I aim to meditate hours? Well, you should do walking and sitting, not just sitting. I don't know if that means you're not doing practice in our tradition because we do tell meditators to do walk, to walk and sit together. So try and do walking and sitting. Um, if you really want to progress, I'd recommend doing an at-home course. If you've done the at-home course, which I guess you probably haven't, um, then we have intensive courses. That's really the best way to progress and to gain benefits from the practice. I would try to avoid focusing on the idea of advancing or maximizing or doing more so that somehow you get better results. Of course, more meditation is great, but it should never be about gaining something or about some future result or about expecting or waiting for something because none of that has anything to do with mindfulness. It should always be about here and now. Focus shouldn't be on what's going to happen out of the meditation. It should just be on what you're experiencing. Just be patient, systematic, methodical, and just stay with the experience. Is the complete cessation of grasping what we call enlightenment? Is enlightenment only possible at the moment of death? So the complete cessation of suffering is what we call enlightenment. Um, no, the enlightenment, I mean, I don't know. Honestly, enlightenment isn't so much a word we use. We normally talk about Nibbana. Uh, and someone who has reached Nibbana is someone who is, we would call enlightened. So enlightenment is the state of being, the state of having experienced Nibbana and realized the cessation of suffering. To put it, to, to I guess grossly oversimplify it, that's basically it. 
but no enlightenment is not only possible at the moment of death that that hasn't that's a definite no i'm not sure where you may have gotten that idea Does organ donation after brain death, with the harvesting of organs under intense medical treatment for organ conservation, interfere unfavorably with the dying and rebirth process? I mean, it can, simply because the being can be sticking around, but honestly, it's on that being to let go. Um, I mean, that might not be fair. No, I guess that's not fair. Like, there, there are... I think hmm, it's difficult. I, I guess I wouldn't say either way. Uh, I mean, here's what I would say. If you know that there's a being stressing out about the fact that people are going to take their, their, their organs, then you should stop. I mean, it, it's it's polite to stop. It's considerate to stop. And you're probably going to cause that being some stress if you don't. That being said, two things. First, I don't, I don't, I don't know how anyone would ever know such a thing. I mean, of course, some, some very advanced meditators can know such things, but I'm assuming you may, you may or may not be one of those. I, I'm, I'm going to assume, make the assumption that you're not such a person. And so you don't know. And because you don't know, there's really not much reason to do that, especially because the second thing is organ donation means the person signed a form and, and was actually intentionally giving away their organs. Now, it's one thing to sign the form and it's another to actually let them go when the time comes, but you would think that they would be a little bit less clingy. It's not, it's not guaranteed, but it's not really your fault that they signed the organ donor card. That's just something they're going to have to learn to deal with, letting go of their organs. So the only way it can interfere is if the being sticking around is stressing out about the fact that they're watching their body be dissected, which, again, for an organ donor, is not really an issue, you would think. I mean, it's their own fault, and if they're stressed about it, well, they should have done their homework. I mean, maybe it's a good reminder to all of us to ask ourselves, yes, I've signed up to be an organ donor, but am I really ready when the time comes if I have to watch them do it while I'm I'm dead, you know? Because for some people, apparently, there's a mind that is a, a mind-made body of some sort that is able to experience it and watch the process of such things happen. So in some cultures, they they wait at least um, nine hours or something, or 12 hours, I don't know how many hours, before they move the body, because they want to give the being a chance to really let go. The other thing is you don't really know, even brain death isn't necessarily a sign that, that the, the being has left, the being has let go. The mind, that the mind has let go. There can still be moments of experience of clinging to the body. So giving some time for that to work itself out is probably, well, it's conscientious, it's considerate. Is wanting to become enlightened ironically keeping us from doing so? Well, not ironically. There's nothing ironic about it, wanting course will keep you from becoming enlightened even if it's wanting to become enlightened 
So I don't know about the us, but if you want to become enlightened, that wanting is going to get in the way because wanting, of course, gets in the way. I mean, it, it's hard because actually Ananda said the pretty much the opposite thing, but that's because the word wanting is ambiguous. What exactly do you mean if you have a desire in your mind? Absolutely, it will get in the way. Um, but if you are inclined or or uh, um, striving to become enlightened, it doesn't necessarily require the desire. Uh, and there is a there is a difference. This isn't just semantics or 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 philosophy, uh, sophism or something. It really is different when you are obsessed with becoming enlightened. You're no longer mindful, right? It's like focusing on the on the finish line when you're not actually running the race. It's like when I when I um, took up track and field for a short time in high school, I ran the four hundred, the four hundred meter, just because nobody else wanted to. And I thought, okay, well, I'll do it. Nobody else. I was just new to the track and I wasn't really good at it. And then we ran the 400 at a competition and I hadn't really practiced. And I just outright sprinted it, thinking I was so happy because I was ahead of everyone. But after 100 meters, I, I petered out and I came in third or fourth or something. So yeah, don't focus on the finish line. Focus on the process. Should negative thoughts be challenged? When doing so, it seems to cause more conflict. Is it best to just observe and not react? It's best to, I mean, if you're asking my opinion and others, well, if you're asking my opinion, the best thing to do is to read my booklet and to take up an at-home meditation course and take up the practice of noting it. Um, should negative thoughts be challenged? No. Negative thoughts should not be challenged. They should be noted patiently. That's your best bet. Now, for intense and repeated negative thoughts, there are sort of auxiliary ways of dealing with them. Like if it's anger-based, you can use metta as a, as a support and as sort of a balm, like rubbing medicine. When you have pain, you can put balm on it, even though it doesn't get rid of the underlying problem. Um, and if you have doubts or so on, you, know, you can focus on the Buddha, that sort of thing. If, you have, if it's lust or greed-based, you can focus on the body and the disgusting, smelly, ugly, greasy, grimy parts of the body. I am a Hindu. But we Hindus consider the Buddha as the ninth incarnation of Lord Vishnu. So if I want to do Buddhist practices, do I have to change my religion? Isn't it still worshipping Lord Vishnu? Hmm, that's an interesting one. Um, Okay, I mean, the simplest answer is that you don't need to change your religion to practice meditation, so I would put it that way. Nothing that I teach you is going to be about changing your religion. That being said, the other thing to say is that the word religion is a problematic word, and there are a lot of religious studies scholars, scholars 
who have come to call for its uh, abandonment because it's a word that is apparently um, meaningless. Now, I don't think it's meaningless. I just think it's important to be specific about what it does and should mean. In my mind, religion should mean that which you are serious about. And that could be anything. So someone who exercises a lot is religiously exercising. And I don't think that's a different usage of the word religious. It just means they take it seriously. If someone is very concerned about their health, then that's a part of their religion. If someone believes kindness to strangers is important, it doesn't matter whether they're doing it out of quote-unquote a religious obligation. It's religious. If someone believes, um, I don't know, I mean, money and ambition are the source of all happiness, or they're, they're very serious and, and passionate about making money, then that's a part of their religion. And if someone believes it's dog-eat-dog, you should manipulate others and do all out for yourself, then I would say that's a part of their religion. It's Religion is not Hinduism or Buddhism. Those are actually highly problematic terms because of, they, they, end, they end up don't meaning anything. Um, so when we talk about the Buddhist religion, what it really means is the things that people, this group of people take seriously. And there are probably going to be things about, um, well, there are going, probably going to be things that you take seriously as a self-proclaimed Hindu that over time conflict um, with, with Buddhist practice. Now, that's not to say that you can't harmonize them. And again, you don't have to give anything up to be to, to practice meditation, as except for the basic precepts, as long as you're keeping the five or eight precepts, which is simple things like not killing and stealing and lying and cheating and taking drugs and alcohol. As long as you can keep those, then there's really nothing you have to let go. The letting go happens as a result of seeing clearly. And so over time, you might find your perceptions on both Buddhism and Hinduism changing, and on some of the things you took seriously, you'll find yourself taking less seriously, as you see that they're either not important or more importantly, they are harmful. Those are the ones that it's very important that you learn to let go of, those things that are causing you stress and suffering and also causing stress and suffering to others, I mean, causing you to hurt others. Things like greed, anger, and delusion. I mean, it's pretty simple. Honestly, the, real, the, the, the best reason why I can say that meditation doesn't force you to become this or that religion is because it isn't dealing with the things that most other religions deal with. Is meditation worshipping Lord Vishnu? No, it's not. But does it conflict directly with that? No, not directly, because it doesn't talk about God. God doesn't come into play. He, Vishnu doesn't come into play. It's just um, you know, watching your, 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 watching your stomach rise and fall, watching the four foundations of mindfulness, cultivating clarity of awareness. We don't have to tell you the answers. You'll find them for yourself. Thank you, Bhante. That's all the questions we have prepared for today. Okay. Well, thank you all for your questions. Thank you for coming out. I appreciate that everyone is very interested. And again, if you're interested in going further with the practice, please be be uh, welcome to sign up for an at-home course or look into to coming to do an intensive course. It's all free. Nothing we do costs money. We're not here trying to make money. This isn't an economic endeavor. 
Um, and again, if people want to help others practice, you, you're practicing yourself and you're interested in helping others, come out to our Discord server, join. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about this. We'll set something up hopefully fairly soon. And we'll start having these mentorship meetings where you can get advice and support on not being a teacher, but just helping people connect with a teacher or connect with the teaching or showing them how to, the basics of how to practice. So wish you all a good week. Peace, happiness, freedom from suffering. Thank you, Chris, for your help. And wish you all the best. Sadhu. Sadhu.